We'll begin reading in verses 6 down through verse 13. Now, of course, you know this already. That doesn't mean that we're going to study all the way through to verse 13. This gives us a little context of what we're studying and it gives us an idea of uh, where we're going next. In a moment, we'll be praying and we're going to, of course, lift up Pastor Joe and ask God to, to bless him and heal him. Genesis 3, verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me. And I did eat. Shall we pray? Father, we ask for the blessing and anointing of your Holy Spirit this morning. That you, Lord, would not only speak to our hearts through your word, but that you would instruct us in such a way that we would glean from your wisdom and understanding and apply this wisdom and knowledge, Lord, to our lives and to our hearts. We pray, Father, that in all that we study through this glorious chapter, that we will, Lord God, indeed understand it to the extent of walking in it and walking toward you, walking in you, walking by and through your strength and your spirit that we might be testimonies and examples of your great love and grace. We pray this morning for Pastor Joe. We ask that, Lord, even now you will bless and heal him, Lord, of all of these physical struggles that he's been enduring for the last couple of weeks. We ask that you would strengthen him and, and bless Emma and Melanie and their family, Lord, that uh, and they're waiting for you to do a great and wonderful work in his, in his life. We ask you, Lord, to give him the rest that he needs and prepare him, Lord, for the continued work that you have called him to do. We ask, Lord, all these things today 
In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen and amen. Well, it goes without saying that humans are so built or constructed or made in such a way that they have to believe in something or they have to believe something. Humans have to believe something. If they don't believe the truth, then they will eventually believe lies. If they believe lies, they will have to suffer the consequences that always come when people reject God's truth. The mystery of iniquity, which was actually revealed to us in the first few verses of Genesis chapter 3, in that uh, critical theological discussion between the serpent and Eve, has consistently found its way throughout all of mankind's history. The Apostle Paul would bring out this truth in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 12, where he writes, For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now letteth will let, which means he who now restrains will restrain, which is speaking of the Holy Spirit, by the way. The Holy Spirit in the church as well. Until he be taken out of the way, and then shall the wicked, that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs, and lying wonders. And notice verse 10, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they have, or because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, or, as we've studied this passage already, that they should believe the lie, that they all might be uh, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The mystery of iniquity. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, all the way till today. It was in the Garden of Eden that that proud serpent possessed by that fallen devil brought about the doubt and the denial and the delusion and the desire and the decision that eventually led to Adam's disobedience. And all of that based on the lie. The lie. Generally speaking, the lie is the questioning of God's word, the denial of God's word, the serpent's substitution with his own lie. You remember what he said to Eve? You will be like God. Satan substituted that into the things that God said because God never said that. And all of this adds up to the lie that has ruled civilization since the fall of man. Now let me clarify in more specific terms what the lie is. It is the belief that men and women can be their own gods and live for the creation instead of the creator and not suffer any consequences. That is the lie. 
Based on everything we've studied up to this point, this is the lie. The belief that men and women can be their own gods and live for the creation instead of the creator and not suffer any consequences. Change everything that God has said. Take on a form of religion or even a form of godliness as it were and think they can do all of this without suffering any consequences whatsoever. That, in a nutshell, is the lie. But what does God's word say? I want to bring you back to the book of Romans, chapter 1. We've, we've looked at this passage a few times as we've been studying the book of Genesis. But uh, let's go to Romans chapter 1. By the way, as you're turning to Romans chapter 1, I want to mention to you that uh, this past Wednesday we began a new series of studies uh, and in-depth studies actually in the book of Romans. So if you were here, you know that uh, we studied Romans chapter 1, verse 1. And that was it. But that was our introduction. So, which, which means that if you haven't studied the book of Romans in a while, uh, you need to come on Wednesday night. If you haven't studied it at all, you need to come on Wednesday night. So we've only studied one verse. You're not missing much. You I went, well, you, you're missing what we talked about, but we want you to get the CD and kind of catch up. But it's easier to get one CD than it is to get 25 CDs, you know, so one, one's not too bad. But uh, it, it is a, a crucial study for us. Anyway, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Because this is what God's word says about the lie. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What is that telling us? That is the consequence of believing the lie. The wrath of God is going to be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Jump down for time's sake, verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. <clears throat> Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. Stop there and remember what Eve did in the garden. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Ties in very clearly to what we see here. God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie or the lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Powerful words about the consequences for believing the lie. And so we see the destructiveness then of believing the lie in the garden. Now, go about 4,000 years forward from the garden for just a moment. Go about 4,000 years and consider an amazing contrast here. Rather than a garden, find yourself in a wilderness. Instead of the first Adam, we find the second Adam, confronted by the possessor of the serpent. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. I mentioned last time that I wanted to begin with this understanding 
We've been dealing with temptation and sin. You'll notice the order that I mentioned that. Not sin and temptation, but temptation and sin. All that began in the garden. The second Adam came. And immediately as he begins his earthly ministry, the first thing we see that Jesus does is he goes into the wilderness to pray and to fast for 40 days. Notice verse 1, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward unhungered, which means he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The devil tempts, and Jesus responds with the word of God. And then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus said unto him, it is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now let me interject here that that is a tremendous statement that Jesus makes concerning himself and his deity. Too many people have said Jesus never talked about him being a deity or being God. Well, yes, he did. As a matter of fact, many times, and this is one of those areas, please understand, Jesus knew exactly who he was. And he wants us to know who he is. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Isn't that just audacity? <laughs> if I may use that word. That the one who could not in the heavens before the throne of God, who expressed his own desire to be like God and to sit upon the throne of God, who was cast out of heaven, what audacity to say to the Son of God and God the Son, if you bow down to me, still looking for that worship, still looking for that acclaim, then I'll give you all the kingdoms. What's wrong with this picture? To the very one who had the kingdoms in his own hand. He's trying to offer him the kingdoms. And Jesus said unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now, it's interesting that Satan's tactics were practically the same with Jesus as they were with Eve. Now, remember one other thing, too, that uh, 
Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, except without sin. He didn't sin. What did he use to combat this temptation? The word of God three times. Isn't it interesting that Eve was tempted three times? For the very three times that we that, that man was tempted in the garden, Jesus came and was tempted three times. In the first temptation, Satan appealed to Jesus' physical appetite. Did the same thing with Eve. What did she do? She looked upon the fruit and it looked pretty good. It looked good for food. Appealing to the appetite. In the second temptation, Satan appealed to Jesus' personal gain. Go ahead and jump off this pinnacle and, you know, the angels are going to come. They're going to keep you from hurting your foot. Very same kind of issue with with Eve. You're not going to die if if you eat of the fruit. You're not going to die. You won't feel the pain of death. Tells Jesus, you won't feel the pain on your foot. Thirdly, in the third temptation, he appealed to Jesus' power or glory, as he did with Eve. You will be like God, Eve. To Jesus, what does he tell him? I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down to me. Food, no death or pain. You'll be like God or you'll have all the world's kingdoms. Same tactics. Uses the same against us today. Maybe in more sophisticated forms, but nonetheless, Satan hasn't changed his ways. He still wants us to bow down to him. The best way to get us to bow down to him is not so much that we bow down to the devil, but that we don't bow down to God. That we don't bow down to the one who created us and made us in his image. If he can keep us from that, anything we do bow down to will be his glory. You see. So here we are back in the garden. And the question that I've pondered for such a long time regarding the regarding the temptation in the garden is this. Where was Adam all the time? Where was Adam? We don't see him in verse 1 of chapter 3. We don't see him in verse 2 or 3. Throughout the most critical part of this theological discussion, Adam was the one that the Lord had spoken to. Adam was the one who gave the instructions, or or Adam was the one who received the instructions from the Lord. And somewhere along the line, Adam gave those instructions to Eve after she was formed from the rib of his side and, 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 and actually brought into this marriage relationship. The implication is that she received everything that Adam received. God gave to Adam, Adam to Eve. 
We know this because of that conversation she had with the enemy in the garden. She didn't do very well, as we talked about last time. She left some things out and she added some things. Not good. But nonetheless, she had some thought that she might have known enough. My question still is, where was Adam? Well, you know, verse 6 of our text tells us where he was. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her. There's the answer. He was there all the time. He was with her. And he did eat. He was right there all along. Adam's silence was the beginning of their sins. Think about it just for a moment. His silence. What did Jesus do when he was confronted? He said, it is written. Adam said nothing. The second Adam did. Eve's attempt to converse and to engage in discussions with a serpent concerning God's word led to her deception and delusion. The deception. God didn't really say these things. You're not really going to die. The delusion. You're going to be like God. That in turn led to her disobedience. And so the outright sinner turned into an outright seducer. We can take that right back to the serpent, the outright sinner from heaven, because that's where, that's where sin began in heaven, not on the earth. The outright sinner turned into an outright seducer. He seduced and deceived Eve who in turn offers the fruit to Adam. And this was Satan's supreme accomplishment, you see. <clears throat> this was his supreme accomplishment. In essence, he fashioned the fallen woman into a tool to entrap and to ensnare her husband. The man who had been made in the image of God, who had been given so much by God, Remember again that Adam was not deceived. As we said last time, he sinned with his eyes wide open. She was deceived. Paul made that clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But in other words, Adam was fully aware that he was willfully de defying the Lord God. His sin, which was much more serious than Eve's sin, because he deliberately followed his heart into sin. Eve was tricked into sinning. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. There might be people that go around saying, well, you know, maybe Adam realized he didn't really want Eve to fall alone. You know, he, he, he didn't want Eve to just be alone in her sin. So he, he went ahead and, and joined her and he loved her so much. Now, there may be something romantic there. Even noble. But that's not what God said. 
That's not what God was looking for. What was God looking for? Obedience. To one simple commandment. And so many people always focus on the commandment. Let's focus on what God had already given them. And how much God had given them. Everything in the garden except for one tree. Now, let's remember that Adam was a special creation of God, made in the image of God. And when the Lord created the heavens and the earth, how did he do it? He did so by speaking everything into existence. Light be, light was. Spoke everything into place. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets. Got everything going. Speaking it into existence. But with man, God took the hands-on approach. The hands-on approach. And, and to this man was given great, great gifts. God gave him intellect. He was God's special creation. Above and beyond all of the animal kingdom. Gave him a, a pure, innocent heart and mind. He also gave him great responsibilities, wonderful privileges as well. He was given a remarkable level of freedom. But we need to understand that it was clear that God was still in charge. God was still in charge. As he is today. And we need to remember that because you see, some would, would, would think, well, you know, in, in, in giving Adam free moral agency or free will, you know, in essence, was, was giving him too much. No. God knows exactly what he's doing. God knew exactly what he was giving. But now let me be bold in saying that Adam's problem actually did begin with God. Now understand that I'm not suggesting that his problems were God's fault. No, they were not God's fault but simply a logical consequence of either forgetting about the limits and the choices that come with free will or deliberately defying them. In the Garden of Edom, Adam was told that everything was for his use except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat that, he was told, and he would surely begin to die. That was very clear. He had a choice. But there were consequences. And death was a possibility. So we see now the distinction between, Eve's being, between Eve being deceived and Adam deliberately doing what he knew he should not do. So we need to, we need to help Eve here for just a minute. Eve needs a little help. The fact that Eve was deceived does not, of course, negate her responsibility. She had the information to do what was right. She just didn't use it. But if God's word is eternal, and we know that it is, then Paul's statement should remind us of something. The statement in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. Here again, a verse that God has given to us that sometimes we either misquote or misread or misunderstand. But it's a very important verse. We're not here going, going to study this verse in detail, but I want you to see what it says. There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but, with, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. That's what I want you to see. 
with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. This reminds us that Eve could have and should have fled from the devil and into the arms of God. Eve could have and should have run from this conversation with the devil to hear the voice of God because God does provide a way to escape. It is through him and in him always. God's word never changes. God never changes. And that is our hope in times of our greatest temptation. That is our hope. And if I were to ask you how many of you get tempted at least once a day, you all would probably say, why once a day? <laughs> we get tempted every day. Every day. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. That's our hope, you see. We don't always know how to deliver ourselves from temptation, but God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. We do, first of all, hope that you are godly. We do hope that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We hope that you have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. We hope that you're saved by the blood of Christ and cleansed by the blood of Christ. But even we as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to realize that we can be tempted. If the most perfect couple of all were tempted and fell, what does that say about us? A good thing to know too is what James says in James chapter 1 verse 12, blessed is the man that endureth temptation. Now I know that this temptation is not only just the temptations that the enemy sends us, this is also encompasses the trials and the persecutions and everything that we deal with, the tribulations of this life. But nonetheless, blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. There is a benefit, you see, to take the way of escape. There is, a te there is that benefit of going to God, because God loves his creation. God loves his people. And Eve had the way. But she was soundly seduced. And Adam said nothing. I mean, think about Adam for a moment. If he, if he had just stood up and said, Woman, this is too much. Lord, I have other ribs. I don't know what would have happened. But Adam didn't do that, did he? What did he do? He ate of the fruit, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see now what has happened from seduction to sin and now to shame. Let's read verses 7 and 8. And the eyes of them both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves aprons. By the way, the word aprons there in the King James literally means coverings. So I didn't want you to get the idea that they were going to have a cookout. Coverings. 
And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. It's interesting that Satan had promised Eve that her eyes would be open. Didn't he promise them that? And they were. But what were they opened to? They were opened to sin. And that was expressed as shame in their nakedness. It opened their eyes to the meaning of guilt. But it made them want to hide their eyes in shame. Here now was the loss of their innocence. Immediately they lost their innocence. And for the first time, Adam and Eve had a personal realization what it meant to sin and to miss the mark of God's will. You see, the word for sin in the scriptures literally means to miss the mark as an archer would aim at a target and just miss it completely. That's the word that is used, to miss the mark. And they miss the mark of God's will. That's what happens when we sin. We miss the mark of God's will in our lives. You see, it wasn't necessary for their happiness that they have this knowledge that the uh, serpent had uh, promised them they would have if they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't necessary for their happiness that they have this knowledge. And it would have been far better had they obeyed and grown in the knowledge of God. How much greater is it for us to forsake the past sins of our lives, to forsake the present temptations of sin around our lives? How much greater is it to forsake these things and to grow in the knowledge of God in his word? How much better is it for us? Because the more temptation comes, the more equipped we are to say, it is written again and again and again, thou shall not tempt the Lord thy God. And thou shall not tempt the servants of the Lord thy God. Consider this thought. Having their eyes wide open brought them into a state of spiritual blindness. Isn't that interesting? Having their eyes wide open brought them into a state of spiritual blindness from which they could never recover without a divinely fashioned miracle of regeneration. In other words, they needed to be born again. For they had lost everything that God had given them. Their knowledge of evil was real too. But it wasn't anything like God's knowledge. Let me explain. A healthy oncologist knows cancer. A healthy oncologist knows cancer and with an expertise and objectivity that surpasses his patient's experiential knowledge. But the person dying of cancer also knows cancer in an intimate way. 
but in a way that is also destructive. The patient knows cancer, but in a way that is destructive. Adam and Eve now had a knowledge of evil that was like the terminal cancer patient's knowledge of their particular cancer, whatever it may be. It wasn't the kind of enlightenment that Satan had led Eve to believe that she would obtain. She and Adam did not become like God. But exactly opposite of God. So many religions in the world try to convince people, listen, if you follow what we tell you, You'll be like God. The Bible says, I alone am God. God says it. I alone am God. There is no one even close to me. One God. So in that state of self-conscious shame, what did they do? In that state of self-conscious shame, what did they do? Verse 7, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons or coverings. Ah. Many of you have fig fig trees in your home. Anybody here? Fig? fig, Okay. (laughs) We used to have a fig tree at home. When I was a kid growing up, I had a job in the summer that was to make sure the birds did not come and eat all of our figs. So I was trying to be creative and I put a lot of aluminum foil strips all over the tree to keep the birds away, whatever. That was my tree. I had to, it was up against our garage and I had to put a ladder and run up to the top and start looking for the good ripe figs and all. Sometimes you'd have to get right into the tree, and getting into the tree, those fig leaves were itchy and scratchy. And then you start pulling, pulling the fruit off, and they had this milk, that, you know, that when you pull them, it just, and that milk would get on you and sticky and itchy, and then I was just one of these kind of things. I, I think I got all my allergies from that tree. I think that, that's where I developed all of this stuff. But I, it just, you know, and it, it was just like, man, this is ridiculous. I can't stand this anymore, you know. I don't even know why I'm pulling these figs. I don't even like figs. Well, I, I, I kind of did, you know, because my mom would take them and make these preserves, and that was pretty good. But, uh, but the trouble of getting them. You know. And then when I first came to the Lord and started reading the book of Genesis and saying they sold fig leaves together. I was like itching again. You know, I said, those poor guys, what did, they didn't, they should have known better. You know, go look for a banana tree with those big leaves or something, you know, even cover more or whatever. But I mean, it just, so, you know, just the thought, I mean, that, that was certainly a wrong decision in more ways than one. I mean, first of all, those fig leaves represent man's earliest attempt to cover up his sin. To provide himself with a covering to cloak his guilt and his shame. They represent every effort made by man to do something to make himself fit for the presence of God. But fig leaves would never do. I mean, they might be good enough between themselves, but but they would never do to hide from the piercing eyes of God. 
All such human efforts wither in the presence of God. Even today, no matter how we try to cover up our sin, all attempts wither in the presence of God. We cannot keep our guilt and shame hidden from God. Consider, if you will, another perspective. Just consider this. That these coverings, as, consider them as, as man's self-made righteousnesses. Man's self-made righteousnesses. Somebody once wrote that this was the first man-made religion in the scriptures. And he called it the first church of the fig leaves. Anybody want to join the first church of the fig leaves? I mean, it didn't catch on, being that it was a bit itchy, but, but the concept caught on. The concept still remains. The concept continues. People are always doing things to change the Word of God, to make it read in such a way that it allows them to believe the way they want to believe, allows them to do certain things that they want to do. It's self-made righteousness. But those coverings will never do. Please reflect upon this verse. Isaiah 64, verse 6. Many of you are familiar with it. But we are all as an unclean thing. Literally it says, but we are all as unclean. And all our righteousnesses, all of our own righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Now, I have to make clear what this means. The filthy rags that are mentioned here are literally the menstrual cloths of women. Now I mention that because you see, if you go back to the law, there were provisions in the law dealing with the menstrual period and the menstrual cycle of women. That at that point in time as they were going through this, they, they had to be considered unclean until they went through particular steps for their cleansing. This is the picture that they're receiving as they're receiving this message. We are all as an unclean thing. And our righteousnesses, if we try to substitute what God's word says with our own righteousness, then this is what they become in the eyes of God. And he says, and we all do fade as a leaf. Isn't that an interesting thing? We fade as a leaf, a leaf, like maybe a fig leaf. And our iniquities, our sins... Like the wind have taken us away. What a powerful verse of scripture. If we understand it fully. Our filthy rags could never serve to cover our sinful hearts today. Rather what we need are the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. And these only come through God himself. Through Jesus Christ. The garments of salvation and of righteousness come only through Jesus Christ. Isaiah 61 verse 10. Listen to what it says. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me. God clothes us. You know when, when uh, let's stop here for just a moment. When, when Adam was clothed in his creation. 
When Eve was taken and, and, and formed from the rib of Adam's side and brought into that perfection and that innocence that God had created them in initially, there are some commentators who believe that there was some sense of a, of a, of a brightness in their, in their being, somewhat of a brightness that may have, may have covered them up in such a way, but in fact it was just a, a brightness or a, or a glory. They were created in the image of God. Now we don't know this to be sure, we don't have pictures, but we do have an example. When Jesus went to the Mount of Transfiguration, and there with Peter, James, and John observing, they saw Jesus transfigure into his glorious being to meet with Moses and Elijah. And the three meeting together, there was this glory that was just stunning to the apostles. Quite possible that Adam and Eve had some kind of a glory that emanated from them because of what God had given them in their innocence and perfection. So think about how God clothed them and then they lost it when they disobeyed God and all of a sudden their eyes are open. Now they see themselves and they went, Woo! What happened here? Things changed. God didn't change it, did he? They changed it. And so when we read Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Let's make it very clear here, when we try to cover ourselves with our own righteousnesses, it doesn't add up. And it can never be as the garments that God himself gives us when we surrender our lives in humility before Jesus Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we are clothed in the garments of salvation and in the robe of righteousness. Listen, we might wonder where Adam was throughout this whole ordeal, but the, but the Lord knew all along. As we shall see in the next section of this text. See, the whole thing is not where was Adam physically, it was where was Adam spiritually. Where was Adam spiritually? And that's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Where are we spiritually? God knows, by the way, where we are. The important thing for us to know today is that the Lord knows where we are too. There's nothing that we can hide from him or withhold from him that he doesn't already know. It would just be foolish to try to hide anything from God. If we attempt to cover our own nakedness before God, then we'd be just as foolish. So we need to let Jesus cover us. We need to let Jesus cover us. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. It is here that Jesus makes some powerful comments. In speaking to the church of Sardis, 
in conclusion to what he has spoken to them about. He says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. But the understanding is, he that overcometh will be clothed. God will clothe him in the white raiment of holiness and will not blot out his name out of the book of life. When you get to Revelation chapter 3 verse 18, Jesus has now spoken a message to the church of Laodicea, the last church mentioned in the seven churches of chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. And to Laodicea, a church that he said, you've boasted. You say you're rich and have need of nothing. But I say to you, you are poor and blind, 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 and naked. He reveals them for what they really were. A church that boasted gets humiliated before God. But what he counsels them in verse 18 is what we need to see. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. You want to be rich? Then you need to go through the fire. Have every impurity burned out. I'll make you rich. Don't boast in your own richness. But then he says, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest see. The devil promised that they would have their eyes open. But what were they open to? All the wrong things. The Lord is saying to this church of Laodicea. You need to change. Your heart, your attitude, your covering. You're wearing raiments that you yourself have put on. To me, they're only fig leaves. I'll clothe you in white glory. I'll heal your eyes. I'll cover your nakedness. Two verses later, Jesus says, I stand... Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He that heareth my voice and openeth the door, I shall come in and sup with him. Fellowship restored. Be clothed in the garments of Christ. Let me leave you with three more passages. Galatians chapter 3 verse 27. Paul says for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is the importance of baptism. Not that the water itself cleanses you from the sin or that the water itself has any properties in it that is going to, uh, it is your obedience to God's command. To follow Christ into baptism for this reason. 
to give personal and, and, and public testimony of what Christ has done inside of you. Then when you come out, he clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. Revelation 16, verse 15. Jesus says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. Well, that's a responsibility we better take seriously. To watch and to keep his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Why, week in and week out, do we always find a way to say to you, Jesus is coming soon, be ready, don't be caught without your garments on. (laughs) Be ready. He can come at any moment. This is not a game. Look at the world around us. Look at the evil as as it makes its way throughout all of the world, even in our own nation. To the extent that we as Christians are now being put into the crosshairs because we believe in Jesus and we speak his name and we speak his word. Someday it may be even get, it might even get tougher for us. And if it does, praise God, we won't shut up. But folks, we need to be ready. I don't want anybody to be caught naked without the garments that Jesus himself has given. And they see his shame. Romans 13, we'll close with this, verses 11 through 14. And that knowing the time, and by the way, this goes right with that theme of knowing that Jesus is coming. Knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Wake up! Are you awake? Knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light, the glory of God. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. All of these words are critical to our understanding. It takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The lusts thereof, Eve was tempted by them. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Do you see now how important the book of Genesis is? For our daily walk? For our daily understanding of living in Christ? Of living for Christ? Of living with Christ as our covering? As our shield of faith? As the helmet of our salvation, as the breastplate of our righteousness, as the belt of our truth, and as the shoes of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The love for God's word, the love for God himself, the love for Christ, and the love of the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot live without any of these things. It's time that we understand this for the days ahead.
It would have been very easy for me sometime in the past 38, 39 years. As we said from the very beginning, when I came to the Lord back in the early 70s, and people were telling me, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. You've got to get ready. You know, uh, he's going to come and he's going he's to snatch us away. And he's going to take us home. And, and, and I mean, I tell you, I was looking at clouds all the time. And I was just ready. Let's do this. Let's do this. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. It would have been easy to say, maybe it's not going to happen. Maybe it's time to just kind of turn to things more common. Well, I can tell you this, after all of these years, though there have been times, you know, you got your ups and downs from this and that and whatnot, I keep looking to the clouds because Jesus said so. He said, keep looking up for your redemption draws near. Keep looking. I'm coming. You know what that does? It keeps us ready. I don't care if you have to go through this another 38 years with me. Let's be ready. Because he can come at any moment. If any of us are taken through death, guess what? He's come for you. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready? I had a dear friend that passed away this week. Her story was in the paper. She was a band director. Met her over 30 some years ago. Her husband was a good friend of mine, went to high school with him, went to college with him, played in musical groups and all together. At the age of 52, she passed away. I believe that in the last few weeks of her life, when given the opportunity to be a part of the music group over at Sierra Vista Church, and I thank God for this. They would not allow them to come unless they know Jesus. But somehow they, the Lord revealed himself to her. So this past weekend, this past Friday, to be a part of her memorial service, to know she was saved, rescued. No matter what she did for those other years, God is going to save people. So whether you've been saved for three days or three years, 30 days or 30 years, we are all called to be ready because Jesus is coming. Either comes for us by death or he'll come for us in the rapture, but he's coming and we need to be ready. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, you better get to know him. You better pray, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Now I realize my eyes have been opened. I live life for myself without guilt, but now I realize the word of God has been a mirror to my soul. And I'm a sinner. And I need your mercy and your grace. I believe that you died on the cross for me and that you shed your blood for my forgiveness. If I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that he's risen from the dead, then, then your word says that I will be saved and that's what I need for eternity. 
Save me now, Lord. I can tell you, God will hear that prayer right now. As a matter of fact, let's pray. Let's all pray. Father, we thank you.